So I am joined on the panel by Jamie Hepburn, MSP, the MSP for Cumbernauld in Kilsyth, and the Minister for Independence. So welcome, Jamie. Uh, on my immediate right, Leslie Riddock, broadcaster, journalist and author, and I a few years ago shared a panel in Holyrood with Leslie talking about uh, independence uh, way back when, or whatever. Then, uh, Professor Anand Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe, who will be well known to many of you, and my colleague Jess Sargent, Associate Director at the Institute for Government, and Jess has just completed a constitutional review, and you've got some details there, as well as lots of UK and Changing Europe collateral and reports, which we do not want to have to take back to London, so please do take them or just lose them somewhere. Anyway, so how are we going to run this? We're going to try and make it quite interactive if we can. Though Jamie has set me a challenge, as you said, never get that much time for questions, so we really are going to try and make it a very interactive conversation. So I'm going to ask all the panellists a quick question or two, uh, a bit of a chat, but then we're going to bring all of you in. So, Jamie, you published in June, mm -hmm. I think, a document called Creating a Modern Constitution for an Independent Scotland. Now, it's obviously a very knowledgeable and interested audience, but what for you were the really important features of that uh, document in terms both of the process, maybe also the content of a constitution for an independent Scotland. Okay, well, thank you. Just before I answer that, I want to know, I've given myself a paper cut. <laughs> so if anyone says your ministers aren't going to spill blood for this cause, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, this, I was asked um, to continue taking forward the Building a New Scotland series of prospectus uh, papers by the First Minister when I was uh, first uh, appointed. And we published three uh, before uh, that stage, and if I can just deviate slightly, one of them uh, was asking the question, why not Scotland, looking at uh, the countries around us that are about the same size, we're doing so much better than us, and I mentioned that because if you've not seen uh, Leslie's film, Denmark, The State of Happiness, I commend it to you, I watched it yesterday, and it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, watch. So anyway, back, back on to the topic. The first of the uh, the papers, as we mentioned, it's uh, this one creating a it's not the most exciting title already. <laughs> creating a modern constitution for an independent Scotland. I, I decided that was the uh, the first one that we'd take forward because it is of fundamental uh, importance. Now, probably out there to people that could be felt to be quite a dry subject at matter, but you know, actually, when it comes to it, what could be more important than laying out how the state is going uh, to function? Uh, and as we move forward, the purpose of these papers is to make sure we are informing the people of Scotland uh, about our vision for uh, independence. And that's why I thought we should we should publish uh, this one uh, first. And there was two uh, purposes behind uh, that. Uh, and it's kind of it's a recurrent theme throughout all of our Bell New Scotland series of, of papers. It's partly a reassurance piece, but it's also uh, about talking to uh, an opportunity, setting out the, uh, the the vision for an independent Scotland. And in the reassurance piece space, what I wanted to make clear is that actually we're ready to go. We have many of the underpinning foundations of, that, you know, we've got uh, an independent uh, civil service. We have effectively a Supreme Court in the guise of court session and the High Court, uh, we have, and I know it'll be uh, 
this will be an area of conversation I can guarantee it. We have a head of uh, state, uh, <laughs> uh, we have established uh, local uh, government, I'll call you to the debate as well, so Leslie uh, takes an interest in that. So that, and actually we're readier still than we were last time around because we've established institutions of state like Revenue uh, Scotland and um, Social Security Scotland. So it's in that area that we're ready to go. The other area, uh, and actually this was the more important part for me, was uh, speaking to the opportunity that we have. And in launching this paper, I very deliberately made sure we focused on that aspect because it draws a direct contrast with the direction of travel we see with the United Kingdom. And let's remember the United Kingdom, as much as it's probably not uppermost in people's minds what the, the constitution of the state looks like, the United Kingdom is an outlier. Uh, it's the unusual one in not having a, a written constitution, which enables it to do some of the following things that I'm going to talk about. By contrast, you know, we've said in the interim constitution that we would uh, propose, we would make sure that the fundamental human rights, the European Convention on Human Rights Convention, the rights of the child, that they will be embedded in our written constitution. Contrast that with the UK government that wants to do away with the human rights Act that we would put in place a provision that enables workers to withdraw labour in circumstances where they feel they have no other option. Contrast that with the UK government's pernicious trade union act. We would have a constitutional right to access healthcare free at the point of need. We know the direction to privatise the NHS down the road. So it's very much designed to show, well, here is the opportunity to make sure we create a document that lays out those fundamental rights that cannot be undone by a temporary government with a simple majority. It has to have a higher threshold. We propose it would require uh, two-thirds support in a referendum to change our constitution. So that's that's why I thought it was important. And I'll just finish off with one other point. The other opportunity, and this is really important, is that uh, this can't be a process that's done by some wise heads and mm. um, well, I'm involved in it so you can draw your own <laughs> some wise heads in a, a room somewhere that has to involve the people and that's a real and genuine commitment for our interim constitution that'll be done with the basis of widespread consultation and then for the longer term we would make sure that they convene and create a constitutional convention representative of, representative of people can look at the big issues come back and lay out what they think the constitution should be, and then it's put to the people. So there's an opportunity for people as well. They can actually shape how the country works, and I think that's really important. So, Jamie, just to be clear on what you think the timetable is going to look like, you're going to talk about the interim constitution, yep. you know, while you're negotiating, you know, uh, independence with the UK yep. government, yep. so then it kicks in. And then, how long do you think the sort of process? last the constitutional convention if we get to a permanent are we looking at a year five years ten years never no <laughs> or quite how long so i mean i think the first thing to say is it's really important that we have that commitment to an yeah. interim constitution yeah. because it's there from from day one we've actually we've we've not obfuscated the issue but we've been very deliberate in not setting out a specific time scale because to some extent Okay, it can't go on forever and a day, but if we can trust in people to look at this, you know, they can't 
hurry them along. They have to have control of it, and they have to make the, the recommendations. And indeed, yeah, I suppose never as theoretically possible because it has to go back to the people, and if they don't want it, then they, they, they should have the right to say no. Okay, we're going to come a bit more onto the process, but Jess, you've just done uh, a big review of the UK Constitution. Quite a lot of this document uh, could be read as lots of things we don't like about the sloppy constitutional settlement in the UK and what it enables uh, a government to do. So what do you think the big takeouts are from your constitutional review for the process of constitution making and independence in Scotland? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you say, we've just concluded this big project. Uh, it contains to take stock at the current functioning of the UK constitution. And I think there are a couple of key lessons that I think are relevant here. I think one is the importance of the process around constitutional change. And I think in the UK recently, because it is so procedurally easy to change the UK constitution in terms of only needing a simple majority in parliament to be able to do that, that sometimes there hasn't been that kind of thorough thinking about what constitutional change would look like, what its knock-on implications might be for other parts of the system. Um, so if you take the example of, of devolution, um, there is uh, an argument that perhaps the institutions in uh, terms of the UK government and the UK Parliament didn't haven't adjusted to that reality to the extent that perhaps they should have, because at the time, I think devolution was conceived as something that was happening in Scotland, and the implications for the rest of the UK weren't really fully considered. So one of the key lessons here is ensuring kind of thorough thought of the process, and also building in political and public support for constitutional change, because again, in the UK, um, what we've seen sometimes is constitutional change taken on the basis of kind of small uh, minority of opinion or even very narrow majorities, thinking here of some of the coalition era constitutional reforms that have since been reversed or changed. And this leads to this situation of constitutional instability in the UK, where there's a lot of energy dedicated to implementing things and then reversing them and a lack of clarity around kind of the rules and process around that. Um, which has some at times distracted from focusing on different policy issues. So I think in that sense, um, there's a lot in this document that I think is, is really positive that will address some of those. First, in the fact that there is that thinking about the, the constitution making process post-independence um, and a kind of thorough kind of map for that. Um, and also in some of the proposals in the proposed constitution itself, which you know, will have a specific process of constitutional change that requires barriers and thresholds above just the simple majority. Um, I think there are some choices within uh, the kind of process that's outlined in the document to be made, in particular, the sort of form that a constitutional convention might take. Um, there's all sorts of different models that have been used around the world. Some, for example, like citizens' assemblies, which are primarily driven by citizens themselves. Is there going to be input from politicians? Are you going to also try and build uh, cross-party support? Because actually, you know, if Scotland were to become independent, there is a possibility that after that point, there might be a different government who wasn't involved in that initial period. How do you ensure that um, any constitution has buy-in across the political spectrum? There's models, for example, in Chile, where people have had the option to directly elect people to that citizens' assembly. That has the benefit mm. of ensuring that everyone participates in that in some way, but has also led to some challenges in terms of sometimes you get people um, elected on kind of very niche issues. So rather than building consensus, <coughs> there's lots of kind of horse trading and those sorts of things. 
Um, so these are all things that I think uh, could be thought about. I suppose my sort of final point and uh, question, I suppose, is uh, around some of the challenges to the UK constitution, uh, around the functioning of the UK constitution that are set out in that document. Um, and whether there are things that can be done before independence to address some of those. So I'm talking here about this point around UK parliamentary sovereignty. One of the big problems that we identified in our review of the UK constitution is that that created a sort of insecurity around devolution and that the devolution statutes themselves could be quite easily amended. And part of our review, we put forward some proposals to try and uh, give some additional protections to those and recognise in the UK that some con some pieces of legislation are more important than others. We propose creating a category of constitutional acts. So I suppose, I know the focus of this event is on a kind of constitution for an independent Scotland, but I wonder if there's also thinking that could be done uh, to ensure that evolution, <coughs> while that is the, the status quo, works better. Okay, I'm going to bring us back to independence first before <laughs> we go down the uh, the continued devolution, you can say rabbit hole, but uh, discussion thread. Leslie, um, what when you read this document, did you think this is the sort of Scotland I want to live, live in, this is actually speaks to me as a sort of approach I want? Is there anything that you thought this is missing some things or that you, uh, you know, would add or that you actually thought, why are they putting that in there? They're making this impossible. Well, at the risk of sort of seeming churlish, which happens to Betsy, Jess and Jill, I mean, there is nothing from the British Constitution for Scotland. Nothing. Nothing. You know, what has happened in history is that every Scot who's left this country has gone to another country and set up a totally different kind of constitution wherever they've gone. No one has replicated the principles upon which the British Constitution is founded. I feel profoundly sorry, and I know this sounds patronising, for people, perky, smart folks mm. like you, who are doomed to having to put your energy into a system that does not want to know, that is not even a system. So, you know, where we are here in Scotland, I think one big thing we have to do before we start anything is to frame ourselves up properly. Because otherwise, all you do is you take a lot of very broken British assumptions to be blunt, and you start shiggling them a wee bit, and you think you're doing well when you maybe get, you know, just a wee bit of change here, a wee bit. No, no. The Scots have got a European tradition of law, of thinking. We can accept proportionality in our parliaments without going bonkers. <laughs> uh, if you look at things which actually demonstrate very clearly underlying social attitudes, Things like, for example, the different criteria used for the two big referendums in our lifetime. The uh, independence referendum uh, decided that if you'd lived here for three months, you were in. Right, nobody had a big beef about that, even though it meant Sean Connery couldn't vote, right? <laughs> but if he'd got his bahookie back from the Bahamas, he'd have been fine. So, you know, there was roughly no big debate about that at all, even though it meant that ethnic Scots living around the world were disenfranchised because the Scots just decided in that ethnicity was not what decides who is Scottish. And There's that quite also, a big beef about that in the IFG that, office I've seen. That also sits on a new Scots policy devised in 2014, which was very distinctive by the Scottish Government, that was to say that anyone who comes here as a refugee or asylum seeker is basically going to be integrated while they're waiting for the Home Office to ever get off their arse and deal with their application. <laughs> 
And that has given us uh, the sort of things that resulted in, in Kenya Street and, and different attitudes towards in, in immigration. Now, what I'm saying is, if you don't work through where we are, what are we like? You know that great phrase from Glasgow, what you like? What are we like? Because if you don't really start exploring some of these things and beginning to see what fundamental ideas, put, how does that put flesh onto constitutional forms? If you took the Brexit uh, by, by contrast, Brexit was confined to Irish, British and Commonwealth citizens. It was ethnic. And I guess there was a bit of discussion about that down the road, but fucking not much, right? Um, and again, that seems normal to people down the road. So the thing is, you need to get to this, the core of that. There's point one. Point two is who decides. Now, you know, I, I've had my differences with the SNP on this. We should be pioneers, not just along on this one, you know, that'll be fine and who'd argue and that's all fine. The Irish and the Icelanders were out there and they did this extraordinary thing, which in the course of doing a constitution creates the change it seeks to, to achieve, which is it does that thing that Scotland's been waiting for since the beginning of time. It trusts its people. There should have been a citizens, uh, however you want to do it, citizens assembly, a sortition process, that's what the Irish did that cracked the problems I never thought I'd see resolved in my lifetime of, of, of abortion and equal marriage. The politicians couldn't do it because they were feared. And the people took that, random selection of people took that decision. They had the, the experts where they should be, not on the stage, on giving evidence to across an intelligent cross-section of the population. And that's how Ireland has revolutionized itself. In fact, in constitutional terms, it's quite possible that folk who were brought up in Northern mm. Ireland, like myself, um, and were on the mm. prod side of the fence, can now look at Ireland and think, mm. okay, not only can I get a fan dabadozi passport out of these guys, <laughs> you know, but they actually are able to change. And so maybe a federal Ireland, yeah, maybe that's a goer now, right? And that's all because of trusting your people. So what's Scotland doing? With all due respect, Jamie, mm. You are writing up something. I know it's mm. an interim one. I've had this in mm. conversation with Mike Russell. But, you know, what we should have been doing from the beginning is just changing the terms of trade in Scotland. It's all top down here. It's all the great and the good that know best. This is the opportunity still to diff this one up and change it because that's what changes people's lives. The Constitution at the end, fine, but the process, 200%. So you... So View in the room, Leslie, but so you're worried about the interim constant and that sort of you know yeah. effect he gets in there is threatened by the government. Well, the thing is, I, kn I know you, you guys, well, I don't know, I trust you guys will deliver in a way that you'd have to say governments tend not to have done in the past. But I mean, having you know, I'm director of Nordic Horizons, Iceland, for example, Iceland when they became independent in 1944 took the Danish constitution, stroked out Denmark, wrote in Iceland, thought we'll come back to this. Right, 70 years later, they have a crash, 2008. Part of their analysis mm. of it is that the powers of the president were far mm. too large, never constrained, and nobody came back to it. That was their interim constitution. Mm. So all I'm saying is, and I appreciate Jamie said the thing about not having a time limit mm. on when you get to the mm. next bit, because this one can't be hurried. We have to, I'm sorry, because this will sound terribly mm. revolutionary, decolonize our minds, all of us, mm -hmm. to get to the stage, like just one question, local, you may say, mm. Jamie, what the actual, I'm not gonna swear, mm. um, we do not have local government in Scotland. Mm. 
We have regional government, mm. right? And I'm sorry, there's one statistic, 175,000 people, the average size of a local council. In the EU, the average size, 10,000. Norway, same population, 400 councils, Scotland, 32. If you think this is local government, you're mad. And if we don't have that conversation, you'll replicate your unawareness of how much of an outlier Scotland is. The only place with larger local government in the entire world is Korea. Now, do you want to talk about that before you put tablets of stone down? Because I certainly do. Okay, so we've got some nicely emerging differences of view here. Anand, uh, you've sort of been watching the sort of aftermath of the Brexit referendum. Uh, Scotland, I think, what's the process? It's going to be unifying uh, in terms of constitution making. Let's assume that an independence referendum isn't going to be 100% for independence. Don't know. <laughs> but let's just do a thought experiment here, Jenny. Not quite 100%. So, how feasible do you think this is to make this a unifying process rather than a potentially quite long, drawn out, divisive process? You heard from Leslie what the warnings are that we just have the interim constitution forever and a day. I mean, I agree with Leslie on two things. Firstly, local government, I agree absolutely. It's, it's concentrated on the central office. And secondly, on the danger of interim becoming permanent. I mean, that interim document. Is going to be so influential in any succeeding debate, uh, it will shape the terms of that debate. So, you know, I'd put interim in inverted mm. commas when talking about this. But yes, I do have genuine, I mean, it is, it is courageous indeed to think that you would have a referendum which recent history told us will be massively divisive, set families against each other, divide society down the middle, after which the country comes together as a whole and in some nice woolly way sits down together and drafts a constitution on the basis of consensus. I just, I find that just politically and pragmatically quite hard to imagine. I don't think we should underestimate the degree to which a referendum will divide the country, because that's what referendums do, which is deeply, deeply polarizing. And, you know, the Irish managed the citizens' assemblies in certain specific circumstances, but not after a vicious, divisive campaign. So I, I, I wonder about the... Just cut the vicious, actually. Yeah. I mean, honestly. Well, I think about 
divert from your vision that's sort of set out in quite a lot of detail here about what this constitution would look like. I mean, you know, say they said, you know, actually human rights, um, yeah, we're not, not so keen on some of those human rights or we want to, you know, or what about we're worried about well, things well, or whatever. What about the Bolivian thing about the land having rights? These Icelanders yeah. talking about land literally having rights, which is what allows I think the question is to me. Oh, Ecuador has wildlife rights. So what would you see as the process of the, for the, you know, whoever's in power in Holyrood then in influencing the Constitution Convention? Is it just very hands-off? Or do you have a sort of, you know, would you be proposing a blueprint, let the citizens sort of talk around the edges so, of it? There's a few things there. So, first of all, I'm not naive enough to think that the, the reductive nature mm. of debate around human rights doesn't have some impact, mm. it doesn't have some resonance here. Of course, of course it does. However, the, that then comes down to the process that you engage in, the type mm. of conversation, the national conversation you have, whereby I think it become more apparent to people that actually these are tangible, meaningful things that matter to them on a, a day-to-day basis. And yeah, I made the point, uh, the right to access a system of healthcare free at the point of need. That will resonate with people. People will understand that. That will begin a conversation. And you know, just to try and reassure uh, Leslie, we do not propose a, a top-down uh, process. I mean, first of all, it's going to be impossible for us unless we're going to go through every single piece of statute that makes up the uncodified, unwritten mm. UK constitution just to lift out uh, the United Kingdom of the Great Britain and Northern Ireland and put in place Scotland uh, akin to Denmark and Iceland, because it doesn't exist, and that's not what we want to do. Uh, in the first instance, we, we, we genuinely, sincerely uh, mean uh, that this should be a process that's in the hands of people. And I'm, you know, I'm going to... You, allow me quote directly from the document it's published people in Scotland must be involved in the design of the interim constitution of Scottish government committed to significant consultation and public and stakeholder engagement on a draft interim constitution for Scotland following a vote for independence there will be a range of opportunities activities and platforms designed to be as inclusive and participative as possible the Scottish government believes that this con- consultation engagement must be designed to reach out to all of Scotland regardless of whether or not they voted for independence. That's your commitment. You've written that down. We're genuine about that. And I suppose the one issue, and it is an important one that we must concern, and Jess made that point, there still has to be a role for elected representatives in that process because it goes back to the point that how do you make sure that everyone is bought in to this process so at the end of it, as much as we possibly can, Everyone has signed up the process and recognises this is what the output is. We're now committed to, to codifying this. So uh, you're right, though. You know, if, uh, if something came forward that um, we thought was fundamentally in the wrong direction, then I suppose we also have to reflect on the citizens of Scotland as to whether they think it's in the, the right place. But that's the interim approach. And I also recognise the danger that Anne has uh, laid out. Um, well, maybe danger is the wrong term, but of course an interim constitution is going to influence what the longer term mm-hmm. ones are. You know, I mean, realistic mm-hmm. enough to do that. But if you've gone through that process, then you've at least made sure that the people of Scotland have been involved in it. That's a serious commitment. Okay, let's go to some, some questions. We've just been talking about participation, so let's have a bit of participation. I'm going to go to Joanna Cherry and then the gentleman behind, whatever. We don't have a mic, so just yell. <laughs> oh, just. I'll stand up. What I was going to say is I don't think it's ever been in doubt 
that an independent Scotland must have a written mm. constitution. A huge amount of work has mm. been done in the past on this, particularly in mm. McCormick. And actually, an interim constitution was published in the summer of 2014 by Nicola Sturgeon. Mm. And I, I kind of feel, Jamie, that the Scottish government's paper is slightly just reinventing the wheel and just recycling that. And I very strongly agree with Leslie that we should try and have a participatory participative process in debating our constitution. And the Common Real have done some work on this. You know, they have suggested that you could have an interim or a provisional constitution drawn up by a representative constitutional co conference with further deliberation post-independence. I mean, this is a participatory process. I very much agree with Billy who's just been beside me. I don't think a referendum has to be nasty and divisive. Mm. The 2016 mm. referendum was not nasty and divisive no. in Scotland, mm. and, and I don't think the 2014 referendum was nasty and divisive, although some people experienced it mm. as that. But there have been reviews and international reviews describing it as the gold standard of how a referendum could be conducted. So it doesn't have to be nasty and There will be people who won't vote for independence, mm. but they have to accept the result. And one way of taking them with us is by involving them in the design of the new state. So one other Two other points mm. I just want to make quickly. There, on the human rights issue, there are certain things we absolutely have to mm. have in the interim constitution. You have to incorporate the European mm. Convention on Human Rights, because without that, you won't get into the Council mm. of Europe, and you won't get mm. back into the European Union, and indeed, be an FWEA, mm. you really would have to have the EPHR in your constitution as well. So that's a floor mm. of rights. It, the issue of whether you have extra rights on top of mm. that, like socioeconomic mm. rights, needs to be thought about really carefully. Mm. Because just to mm. announce that you have a right to free healthcare doesn't mm. actually create the circumstances in which you get good free healthcare. And I'd rather see the government mm. focus on that mm. rather than having declarative rights. But we've got to have minimum rights. We've got to have a proper mm. constitutional court. Mm. I don't think it should be the existing court session. Mm. I think we should have <coughs> a separate constitutional court like Ireland has. And, you know, to be frank, and I've said this publicly, mm. everyone knows that I was very critical of the gender recognition mm. reform bill. If Scotland had been an independent country, with a written constitution mm. incorporating the ECHR, mm. that bill could have been challenged by a constitutional court as impacting on the rights of women and LGB people unfairly. So that's what you have mm. to suck up with a written constitution. The parliament's not supreme. Mm. Just because the parliament passes a bill, if it offends our aspects of the constitution, it can be challenged. And one last point, we could actually start doing some things under devolution to improve mm. checks and balances on executive power in Scotland to show that we genuinely believe power should be more fairly shared. So I think the constitution should look at whether we should have a second house. But in the meantime, we could strengthen the committees at Holyrood by having their chairs elected by the backbenchers rather than appointed by the whips. So there are things that we could do already under devolution to make our government more accountable. But I think that people should be involved in drawing up the interim constitution and whether they are or not, it's got to have a sunset clause in it and just last for a short period before it's replaced by something more final and definitely drawn up by the people. Thank you. Can I, and I, do you try and quickly on I just want to add to yeah. what uh, Joanna said by way of a question to Jamie, which is how how do you decide which policy as opposed to institutional matters get codified into a constitution? Because uh, it does seem to me that that's something we haven't really debated enough in this country, that there are some things that are basically questions mm. of public policy, mm -hmm. you know, how we deal with mm. the healthcare and things like that. Why? Why should they be constitutionalised and other bits of policy not constitutionalised? How do you make those decisions? Well, that's debate. That's what we proffer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are others that we... And, you know, this was mm -hmm. a question mm -hmm. asked to us 
uh, in times where the constitutional provision we've talked about is a, a commitment to work towards uh, nuclear disarmament. Now, that kind of goes back to the point that Joanna has made. That, you know, it's, it's probably not that much of a surprise that we would publish Joanna's kind of similar to mm. what we published in 2014, because you know, the values of the Scottish National Party and Scottish Government have not radically altered in the intervening period. I think, although I, what I will tell you is the the ground that we're fighting on has uh, slightly changed because uh, of the direction of travel in the United Kingdom. But you know, fundamentally, what we've done here, this mm. is the Scottish Government's mm. perspective. Mm. These are things we think mm. should be included. Mm. Um, so you know, that's how we've chosen them. Uh, then goes back to the point, and again, I can't emphasise enough, we put it in black and white. It's over to the good to determine and decide and deliberate on these matters. Uh, and if, you know, after consultation, they say... But in what way, just specifically, how are you consulting? Well, we've not, we've deliberately not specified that because there does have to be a degree of leeway in making sure we go through the process of considering how we do that in the context of just having voted for independence. And that will require, and that goes back to the point that I've made, about ensuring that other elected representatives who have not supported independence can buy into the buy into the process. But the fundamental, the bottom line is that uh, the people deliberate on it and they inform what is uh, put to us uh, at the end. The one thing I'll say, and I very much disagree with Joanna, there should not be a sunset clause on it because if we're put in the hands of the, the people uh, when we move towards a, a permanent constitution, uh, they have to have a vote on it and we should concede at the outset. I'm not suggesting that we should predicate it on as wanting it to be the outcome, mm. but if the people disagree with what has been drafted, then the last thing I want is, is to go back to a state of affairs where we have no written codified constitution. Okay, just very quickly, and then I'm going to take it for a bunch of questions. Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to come in on this sort of very nerdy, sort of technocratic question, uh, which is just to make the point that, you know, after the independent question is settled, whether that might be if Scotland can become independent, the Scottish government is going to be very busy. <laughs> it's going to be negotiating with the UK government. It's going to be work working with the EU on possible accession. It's going to be drawing up a potential constitution, trying to build capacity for all the functions that are currently performed at UK level, setting up public bodies, uh, setting up new departments, bringing all sorts of capacity in-house. And so I think there's also a need to think about um, processing capacity here. And I think there is a slight risk if you try and kind of do everything at once that you might overpromise and underdeliver. And fundamentally, particularly in terms of the citizen engagement point, um, the thing you can do that is almost most damaging to public trust is promising the people that you will involve them at X stage and then not doing that properly. So I think there is an argument for the Scottish Government's kind of proposal of an interim constitution to provide stability in the kind of immediate future to allow that process of independence to be fully delivered before then going back to the question about what should an independent Scotland look like in terms of local government, in terms of the role of the monarchy, all of these really important things that need proper consideration and attention. I think if you try to do them all at once, then I think that might end up uh, not delivering what, what you might hope it to. And the fact that there isn't a UK written constitution means you can't just do what Leslie said, you know, yeah, but Iceland did of just delete and insert because there isn't anything to we delete. We don't need to use the UK as a no. template. I mean, sorry. <laughs> no, I get that. I get that. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's go. But the, you don't even have that option yeah, yeah, in terms of whatever. So let's go. Ladies uh, in yellow and pink standing out in the back. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 
Well, and then now I'm going to you. Like no, oh, okay. You then, ladies in okay. yellow and pink. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I think we were in danger there with vinyl taking over the room <laughs> because we are suggesting for those participating yeah. so far away yeah. that you had a gadget in your mind. There is an answer to this, right? I've, I've actually been left mm. on this one mm. because we have to be very, very careful what we're doing in terms of constitutional development. It belongs to everybody, not to one single party or one sector at all. But yesterday we passed a resolution, mm. and that resolution is very scary because it got a compromise position between a lot of experts, and that was all worked out. That, con that compromise included a very important part, and that is the Constitutional mm. Convention. Yeah. The Constitutional mm. Convention is almost certainly going to be needed in order to push forward once we actually get to a stage of an election being won, asking for negotiations with the UK government, and the UK government will say no, because the UK government doesn't mm. want to lose Scotland. Right? Simple as that. They want to keep us out. Right? So it's likely to be a UKR Scottish Constitutional Convention. That is going to have to be the driving force pushing forward with the people of Scotland backing it. So the constitutional position changes away from party politics. Not the Westminster government, whether the Labour or Tory versus SNP or Labour in Scotland. It becomes constitutionally the Westminster government versus the people of Scotland. For democracy. That is a massive shift constitutionally. The body that drives mm. that forward, the Constitutional Convention. Mm. What does the Constitutional mm. Convention do once we get to a stage where the UK government reaches a compromise to make a ruling place? We'll have a referendum rather than create an unstable society. Mm. On the other hand, we might just take a field in. But sooner or later, we will get to a stage where we will want, we will get independence. What happens to the Constitutional mm. Convention? Well, people are negotiating. The Constitutional mm. Convention can be the vehicle because it's established. It has proved that it can harness the will of the people. And the Constitutional Convention can be the driving force for the Constitution. Mm. We don't have to write a Constitution. We have to just come mm. and have a discussion about it and then say, when the vehicle is needed, that vehicle is there, it exists. And the people themselves who back the Constitutional Convention and achieve independence continue the work as people. Okay, that's it. It's interesting. I'll come back to the panel. The second next case for the ladies in yellow and pink. Lady in yellow. I'd like to ask uh, Jamie, what other organisations did you look at and put out uh, this, this document together? Because there are other groups that have looked at mm -hmm. different constitutions. Uh, I worked on one that my NYM had on. Um, that involved Professor Jamie. Not me. Professor, <laughs> Professor Romer. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and Mike Russell. Yeah. Have you looked at that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, I've I've spoken yeah. with Elliot Romer uh, on more than one occasion. So you know that uh, interim constitution isn't the government's. So I've no. looked at it, and there's nothing inconsistent within it no. in terms of what we laid out. I think. There were around a dozen groups, national groups. Um, obviously, everyone looking for independence mm. in those groups. Uh, but I think it was, it was quite a good document. So, did you, did you think yeah. there was a big difference between that and the interim one I'm proposed by the Scottish Government? I'm yeah. fully ready. All right, okay. I'm now, ready. Lady in pink. Right. Moving on from just what Lady was saying, my colleague here, this afternoon, fine. Jamie, you were asking a question with regard to consultation, mm -hmm. and you, I 
because if there's a little bit of sensitivity and mm. interesting that others um, beyond the realms of Scotland, we mm. um, in 2014, as you know, um, the entire population of Scotland basically opened its eyes to yep. politics in a much wider and a much more confident mm. manner and discussion um, what we like and what we don't like. Mm. What concerns me a wee bit is that you're, forgive me for saying this, mm. you did show a little bit of hesitancy mm. in actually discussing further who we're actually looking at. We all are aware mm. of the work that mm. Leslie has done with the Nordic mm -hmm. models and stuff. Can I ask the question again? Mm. Are we looking beyond our shores? Are we looking towards the Scandinavian models, the Nordic models? Are we hopefully going to bring them in? Because I have a great deal of hesitancy, I must admit, that we are actually going to look at the UK constitution, which you know doesn't really mm. exist. Well, so no. I, can I ask, I mean, yeah. I've no stage yeah. have I said, you know, what we will do is predicate. I think that's the exact opposite. It will not be predicated on the UK mm. constitution. I mean, it's very hard. Mm. Sort of a written codified constitution. That's the antithesis mm. of what the United Kingdom constitution is uh, with, with respect. And yes, what we've looked at is informed by uh, other people's experience, other countries' experience, not, and talking about, well, you know, some of these things are policy propositions, which I recognise, could be felt too. Mm. But uh, if I remember correctly, Portugal, for example, has a mm. constitutional right to access and healthcare mm. free at the point of need. So these things are out there, they're practical. Uh, yeah. I find it interesting that there's this sense that we're not committed to consultation. Okay. I laid it out clearly. Okay. That is our commitment. This is not a top-down process. And actually, I'll go further, I disagree with the proposition that the Constitutional mm. Convention we talked about establishing yesterday, which I agree with, I think Joanna was right to bring that forward, but that serves a specific purpose in driving forward the debate towards independence. But that itself would be too exclusive a body to take forward the drafting of a constitution for everyone. Draft it. I mean, we agreed to consultation in the meeting that yeah. Leslie's talking about throughout the whole country. That, that's, that's, an, that's, that's an opportunity, that's a possibility. Totally open to that. Mrs, do you want to come in on where they should yeah. be learning lessons Well, from? it's just this issue of consultation. You know, that's not power. You're consulting constantly. You know, your method of, of dealing mm. with pretty well everything is here's an idea from the government and yeah. then you go and consult on it yeah. and then you come a cropper because that's not actually giving the power to people to come up with their own decisions. That's the change in Scottish politics that is essential. So for example, you got clobbered with the HPMAs because communities are not daft, coastal communities. They know fine well they've got problems with fish stocks, mm. but they want to decide where they're going to have no take zones, not you. So the point of all of this is you need to have, uh, as the phrase goes, Experts on tap, not on top. <laughs> and that is now you're laughing because you've maybe not heard that before. That is standard with all the Joanna knows because we went to we were blown away by the Irish when we went to hear, you know, at our own blooming time and expense, more of exactly how they've done this. So you need to get into the gubbins of stuff. Just to give you one example, it might be controversial. But the Icelanders, and one of the reasons they got stuck with their constitution, they didn't include the politicians, they got happy and that's a bit of a thing. But the other one is that they want to put into their constitution that the land itself has rights. Now, as Joanna said, if you place stuff in a constitution, you allow other people to start levering change out of that. You allow lawyers to come in and say, if the land has rights, would it want to be... Uh, covered by hydro dams that Alcan comes and Alcoa come and use for practically nothing, probably it wouldn't. And it, it lets you have an argument about the future course of your country. 
in a way that actually party politics sometimes doesn't allow you to have. It gives you a second bit of muscle as a set of people because you have put something in there that allows at least a proper debate. Now, you know, I think, that the slowness of change on land uh, ownership in Scotland is appalling and embarrassing. Right. So the point is, you could, if you want to have a proper conversation, and I don't care, Jim, Jamie, if that's something that's going to come from a Scottish government that's not moving on it politically fast enough, I don't think you will put in what could be a time bomb for us, the people, who decide we're not going to wait another hundred years until we see if we've got another set of clearances out of places that should be populated. So that's what I mean. That's the level of track you need to have a real thoroughgoing, total big conversation and then reduce it back down to the key points that allow all these possibilities for this country to explode. What, okay, let's what, have let's go. What have I said though that is inconsistent with that Con possibility? Consultation. Yes, but that goes back to that one word. That goes back oh, that's sorry. The best one of all. No, it's not. It's, oh, that it's one was. But Jason's point. You're consulting is, point is, is an you've got the power one. and you let Jason's the little people say one. something about your well, decision. Look, look, I'm not going to talk about little people uh, or ordinary people. And this, I'm one of the people of Scotland who happen to be, have the privilege of being elected, but I'm still one of them. I'm not getting into any nonsense of uh, talking about ordinary people or little people. If you consult, who has let the Let me power. finish my point. Jess made the point, and it's a legitimate one, is one we have to take seriously, that if we're going to be ready from day one, it's not going to be the same process for the longer term the consultation. We have to get ready, we have to have it ready for day one of independence, lest we have that unwritten, uncodified constitution. I don't think anyone in this room aspires to. So yes, that's the method we'll deploy, but it can be, and it should be, and it must be, a genuine open, participative process of consultation. That's something we can do. But yes, of course, in the longer term, for that permanent constitution, I quite agree. It has to be a more substantive process. Again, that's what we have to do. Okay, I'm going to take quite a, I've got quite a few <coughs> nexus of comments here. Gentleman on the floor, and then lady there, and then gentleman, so going mm. round here, yes. My name is Gordon Benton. I'm one of the seeds that created the constitution for Scotland which went on internet, which is the language we talk, not brochures and documents like that. We talk in internet now, and we had over 10,000. Somebody may be here who took this thing on. Over 10,000 people are reacting, and we're starting now to talk about this thing. This document was sent to the government with no acknowledgement, and we just want, we haven't seen this document, but uh, we'll have a look at it. But there is the media there, discussion. Okay, that's interesting comment. Yes, lady. Um, just to talk a wee yeah. bit about uh, participative engagement, not consultation. Firstly, why can't we start relatively soon? You know, after we vote, not after we take mm. the election, why can't we start engaging uh, the population? Because the engagement itself will bring people on in ways of thinking and learning about what an independent Scotland can be. And I know that's hard because we're asking people to be engaged who don't aren't there yet. But at the moment, we've got around about 15% of people who are ambivalent. We've got about 38% who are completely anti-EU. That's a big population of people who may well engage, even if they're not completely won over. And it might be some of the antis would engage because they would want to ensure belt and braces that they didn't get something they absolutely couldn't live with. 
So there is a population out there that we could start talking, engaging with now. I don't believe it's on the internet. I really don't. I believe it's in rooms mm -hmm. like this where people can hear voices like Leslie talking about land rights. What would that actually mean? Who would think of that if they hadn't heard somebody else telling them? So I do think there's a process that needs to be participative, it needs to be in a room, it needs to be talking, and it, we need to think about how do we pick, how does our society pick the people that should start those dialogues? Do we do it through the electoral system? So I do think there is something about participative engagement, not consultation, that can start now and could help us on that journey to independence in a way that wait until after a vote won't. Yeah, thank you very much. My name is Professor Joe Goldblatt, and as you can tell from my thick Scottish accent, <laughs> I come from another place that uh, has a little experience 500 years ago with creating a constitution. First, I want to thank Jill for effectively chairing this program. And my question is for Leslie and for Professor Menon. My question is, I chair two organizations in Scotland, the Interfaith Association of Edinburgh and also Volunteer Edinburgh. How can we ensure the voices of the third sector are woven deeply into this consultation process? Thank okay. you. Okay, and I'm going to take another question, I think, from um, another part of a North America. <laughs> and uh, a professor of constitutional law. I was also an MP and an MNA in Quebec. Mm -hmm. and I have a question because in 1995, just before the referendum, the government had drafted mm -hmm. an initial constitution. It didn't make it public. It, and after the referendum, people said it should have. It should have. Because if people have seen that initial constitution, they might have given us the 50,000 votes we have needed to win that referendum. We were almost there. But the issue then, Jamie, is how could you involve people in the interim constitution? Because, you know, interim constitutions do say things that might be very divisive, that might, you know, not help you win a referendum, nuclear disarmament, or some issues, human rights. So I think there is a, a big debate to have on who should be involved in drafting the interim constitution, because it doesn't suffice probably that the government be the only ones who draft that interim constitution. So Jamie, if you want to come back on back on that, because I think it's really interesting how much you want to reveal in advance, you reveal quite a lot, yep. but you know, lots of energy in the room about you know the interim constitution yep. drafting, not just being there as a sort of you know make weight for a little bit, whatever you know that you have to have. What what are your thoughts well, on yeah, that? At the end of the day, someone has to draft it, so let's not lose sight of that. And um, there is for all the concern that's been expressed, there is legitimacy in an elected government taking the lead on that, but it has to be, and I go back to the point, informed by having engaged with people so that we know what they desire to be in that uh, constitution. Now, how we go about that, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say precisely what every particular forum, whatever particular meeting, it should be beyond there is a genuine commitment to making sure that we do that, do that properly. In terms of the question about, you know, why can't we do it now? I mean, it could. Uh, I suppose uh, I've got two observations on that. The first is that the debate itself in 2014, that was the great debate, people engaging in political discourse. 
uh, perfectly great in a way that I've never experienced it before. And that in itself could almost be part of the process. I guess the question you need to grapple with is, well, you know, once people are actually looked for it, there's legitimacy in beginning uh, that, that, uh, that work. And going just quickly on, on your uh, point, I, I'm sorry if something's been sent and it's not been responded to. I don't know when it was sent, I don't know who it was sent to. Feel free to send it to Six me. Six months ago. Right. Well, send it just to me. a lot of people are doing this yeah. and we just want to know how it's going to be put together ah. and get the people to talk about it. It's a good challenge. Let's talk a bit about designing process. We've got some comments here. I'm quite interested on the sort of, um, the sort of, you know, ultimately you have a participative process, but ultimately the final constitution gets put to a, a referendum of some sort. A confirmatory vote. If the people don't, I'm quite interested in how much is in that referendum, whether some issues. You mentioned, no one's brought it up, but I'm going to the issue of who your head of state is. Is that sort of bundled into that final constitution? If I love the constitution, but I want to get rid of the monarchy, uh, how would I vote if I think that's really important? How, you know, or do I have multiple referendums and then you yeah. potentially have a referendum on joining the EU? I don't know whether you do that as well. How do you, how do you see that all working out? Or would that also be for the constitutional convention or the, you know, the process there to decide how to put it to the people. Well, it would be precisely that, and we've made that uh, explicitly clear, so it would be perfectly possible for a convention to say, look, here's the bones, here's the things that everyone broadly can agree yeah. with, and that probably falls yeah. in the space of some of the things I've spoken yeah. about in terms of fundamental uh, rights, <laughs> notwithstanding the point that that will itself be the subject of debate. The things that could be felt to be mm. a bit more controversial, yeah, okay, you could put them to a separate referendum. I see nothing wrong with that, and again, hopefully, again, that's an emphasis. It should be in the hands of the people. They should get to determine this. I just wonder about whether even fundamental rights, which is easier than saying, mm -hmm. you know, we should be touched on the issue of gender, ethnicity. Mm -hmm. There is the big question of whose rights and when rights mm -hmm. clash. So I, I do wonder, you know, even something that you, you seem to think of as being relatively straightforward is getting even more complicated. I think well, a lot of this discussion mm -hmm. comes back to the point mm -hmm. that Jeff made, which is to do this sort of citizen involvement properly is going to take enormous amounts of time at a moment when a newly formed Scottish government, as Jeff said, is going to have an awful lot on its plate for pragmatic and practical decisions. So I'm quite interested, uh, you've sort of said various things that are sort of up for grabs, like sort of bicamerality. Um, your document doesn't say very much about appointing people, like, you know, clearly the judiciary has potentially a very big role, as Joanna yep. Cherry was saying. It can start striking down laws where there are difficult conflicts of rights and the government might find itself being overruled on the basis of you know, what it put in the constitution may it didn't mean quite what the people in writing it intended to when the judges get there. So what's the sort of thinking about separating powers properly in terms of you know that new system? We know how the US works. Leslie, do you think the people of Scotland are people in Scotland are ready for sort of, you know, very more, even more powerful judges than we see now. Maybe devolution is a bit of a sort of, you know, precursor to seeing judges in the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, we, we have our own legal system, and we've had it for a very long time, and Scots are aware of that. And um, you know, a hot shot that comes up mm. from London still has to go through, I think, fourteen mm. exams over some mm. period to convert themselves into a Scots mm. lawyer. Mm. 
So, you know, it's not like it's a woe idea. I think people, that's one of the fundaments of what people mm -hmm. understand, to be distinctive about the institutions of Scotland. You can build on that one quite easily mm. and have a good discussion. It's not my area of expertise. Mm. One thing about the head of state mm. um, conversation, I mean, the Norwegians, when they mm. became independent, did actually have a separate vote on whether or not they would have a head of state. Mm. Um, they already had a constitution when they newly became independent in mm. 1814. So it was almost 100 years later when they were finally mm. OSCE that they thought, right, we're right here mm. now, so let's have that. And actually, they decided they did want a head of state, and they borrowed one, uh, I think, from Denmark. <laughs> you know, so that kind of did. Strange, you know, a lot of people at the time might have thought this was quite a revolutionary bunch of people who would have had the republic, but they didn't. Um, and I think the the other key vote mm. then would be about EU membership. This idea, I'm sorry, it's like it's the infinite weariness of people who are subjected to Britishness. <laughs> That you just have this view that voting is a pain in the arse, that it's going to be mm -hmm. conflictual, that it you can only do it once and you'll run out of energy, and I mean this is what is this is what is pretty much bogging down the whole of the British debate. And I'm not saying we're brand new; we're normal people. We get knackered. I am utterly mm. blooming knackered, right? In fact, many people in this room will operate on a semi-knackered total basis because we've been ten years trying to do something about this. And we're being blocked by parties which can brazenly just dismiss a whole nation in what is meant to be a union of equals, and nobody even gets angry anymore. <laughs> yes, you've done legislative revision referendums as positive things rather than, you know, with sort of uh, opposite at world weary after experience of referendums. Okay. Actually, you know, one of the things that's very notable about the UK, that's whatever, is the really casual and rubbishy way we do referendums. They're using a technical term that, you know, whatever, just up to the will of whoever happens to be Prime Minister of, of the day. Are there lessons, actually, that Scotland might have about how to put in its constitution how to run referendums better? You've done some work on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in the UK, referendums are... Have become increasingly common, but aren't necessarily there's not a huge amount of process about when or how they're used. But I think um, certainly talking in in the UK context, we think about things like Brexit or election reform referendums. Traditionally, they've been used to sort of manage party conflicts rather than necessarily on points of kind of principle. <coughs> if we look to other countries, actually referendum requirements are actually quite common in uh, other countries' constitutions. Um, there are some questions about how robust that you make those, and I think. The Australian example um, recently of uh, the referendum on uh, making some progress on Aboriginal rights that failed um, because uh, there wasn't that uh, support um, in, in the referendum, which also required a certain number of states to vote that way, shows you some of the dangers of requiring a referendum on everything, particularly when we get to questions around minority rights. Not everything is appropriate for that. Um, but certainly, I think uh, a, a codified constitution would be an opportunity to make it slightly clearer um, when referendum should be used and in what circumstances. Again, I think there is a question coming back to the earlier point around sort of policy versus constitutional um, constitutional questions and what should go in the constitutional document and what should be kind of part of the political debate is relevant here as well because actually one of the barriers to progress in in Ireland on things like um, marriage equality and abortion was the fact that those things were written into the constitution which then meant you had to have a referendum to change them um, because that's required under the Irish constitution which meant that actually 
visiting centres is a great way to break that mm. deadlock, but it actually might have been easier to do that in a circumstance in which that wasn't written into the document itself. It was kind of more part of the policy round. So I think you want the constitution to be flexible enough that it can modernise and, and evolve mm. as society is. I presume if Scotland mm. became independent, mm. they want the constitution to last, you know, centuries mm. um, and mm. need to ensure that you enable it to do that. But um, there is also this question of constitutional change and, um, and referendums around that. I mean, Jamie, you've got this sort of talking about amendment formulae, haven't yep. you, for the constitution. So how do you, because, yeah, you might, I mean, it might be quite difficult to get right, absolutely right the first time. Judges might go off and do slightly, uh, slightly <coughs> unexpected things with the constitution. How do you see that sort of ultimately working? Would you then re-involve the people as a lady there in purple? So I'm very approving of someone wearing purple. Yes. Yes, I do hope it would influence uh, not. I just wanted to kind of bring it back to what I thought what people in this room were interested in, and this is the business of a people's assembly mm. or the people getting the right to make the decisions. And we talked about how in uh, 2014 there was a general awakening of political activity around the independence referendum. And it seemed to me if we were to make an assembly, a proper assembly, not a consultation on an interim mm. thing, and do it before we were at independence so that it doesn't impact on all the things we have to do after we've won a representative referendum, then that would be the thing that would perhaps bring a great deal of realisation to the whole population, both the yes and the no and the undecideds, about what they actually want from Scotland, what they want Scotland to be. And then having done that, you might find that some of the people who are currently no would have a better idea of what it was yes was aspiring to them. So I think I'm, I'm with Leslie on this. I think it's the people make the best decisions. Okay, and we're sort of running slightly over. We're going to take one last question and then we're going to come to the panel to say it. And actually, I'm really interested in this question about whether actually consulting now on the constitutional form is actually going to be something that will involve people who at the moment are undecided, are sceptical, and actually make them, you know, maybe change their minds about dodging <coughs> fence. Yes. Um, I just wanted to know, obviously everybody wants buy-in across Scotland mm -hmm. in the design of a constitution, but whatever you do, you won't please everybody. Mm -hmm. And how do you avoid the risk of a big constitution that says nothing in an attempt to please everybody, mm -hmm. essentially Okay, and then it just leaves it all to the judges to then work out what the hell you meant. Anna? I mean, in answer to the gentleman's yeah. question from I'm five so minutes excited, ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I want to make a general UK point about the ill health of our democracy in this country, which I think stems from several things. It stems from a general lack of faith in politics for politicians. I mean, we've got to the point where few months ago, 25% of people said a lack of faith in politics was one of the biggest problems we face. So the people themselves recognise that this is an issue. I think that's fairly different yeah. here. Uh, I feel not... very, it's very different in Scotland yeah. from the rest of the UK. Really? Yeah. I mean, these are, these are national figures. I haven't seen them disaggregated. Yeah. 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 But I do, I do think we have issues around our politics. I think the other issue around the our Scots politics... Scots have the highest level of trust. 
in the UK, in a government and in each other. It's nowhere nowhere near Nordic level, so let's not get Mm. above ourselves. But it is actually the best in the UK. But, I mean, it's a low number all round, though, isn't it? Relative to countries like the Scandinavians. I mean, it's not... Yeah, that's fine. fine. We're not overflowing with France. I think (laughs) over-centralisation is another issue. So I think, actually, there's lots of stuff we can do to improve communication participation on a day-to-day basis. Mm. I mean, you look at the way that party membership has fallen off a cliff uh, in many of our parties. People aren't as engaged, even, even this uh, On What was the question you asked me, Jill? What was the question? As that, I'm interested in whether actually having people participate in constitution making sort of changes, you know, particularly if you go for the sort of constitution convention or whatever, before the issues sort of finally decided or whatever, and maybe before Westminster's. Uh, agree whether actually you would get participation, whether actually the process of being involved in constitution making is at all likely to sort of change attitudes. So let me let me just reinforce my popularity in the room by saying it strikes me the danger is that those who are opposed will just simply boycott the process, which will affect the legitimacy of what comes out the other end. And that's that's a danger, it's got to be something you've got to think about. Yes, and, and that's why you need to look at who's already done this. Do you think in Ireland, the folk who are anti-abortion wanted to re-examine the amendment in the Constitution about abortion? Of course they didn't. They wanted to leave it the way it was. So you've got to do work. That's the beauty of this whole thing. It's like it's easier to get in a car. It's better to walk. So the thing is, you're looking to try and get work going. And the point at the very base of this whole thing to me is that the, the, the real Constitution of Scotland is based on the claim of rights mm-hmm. as it sits upon the Declaration mm-hmm. of Arbroath, and that is that the people are sovereign. Mm-hmm. Now, Britain is entirely, mm-hmm. you talk about the problems of parliamentary sovereignty, it is because the parliament is sovereign. Now, we've got a very different outlook, and that's what I want to see upheld and advanced as anything to do with the Constitution, is to put our past back at the top and understand now, mod- in a modern mm-hmm. world, what that means for us. Yes. Any thoughts on any final thoughts on constitution making before I go back to Jamie? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I would I would agree with Anna about the, the risk about when you start this process and that ultimately any process needs to command legitimacy across the political spectrum. And obviously, this is a conversation in kind of one room uh, with kind of people that are, you know, very uh, supportive of the cause of independence, I imagine, I don't know. Um, uh, but there is also a need to bring along people um, who might not support independence. And therefore, I think it's really important to, to think about how this all fits together with the kind of other work and aspirations um, and uh, processes that will need to take place in Scotland were to become independent. A lot of energy for participating yes, in uh, constitution making. There certainly is, yeah. and that's precisely the point. That's what we want to, to harness. Just one quick observation on party numbers falling off a cut twenty years ago, SNP had nine thousand members and now we have seventy five thousand. So lost Long-term trajectory has been okay, uh, and anyway, um, just uh, depends where you count from, doesn't it? 
Well, I envy it, and I, I chose my job. So. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the last, the last point, I suppose, uh, I was, yeah, I want to emphasise. It's interesting, you know. Um, you know, everybody talks about the, the great totemic declaration of our growth and the claim of right, and they are they're part of our constitutional heritage and tradition. But I wouldn't want to do it that way. I don't want a few nobles going together and writing off and the great and the good the communitas regni as they were. I want it to be a genuinely participative process, one that includes all of the people, absolutely recognising the vital nature of ensuring that those who do not agree with the proposition that Scotland should become independent are heard, are involved in that process. In that regard, Jean. You said people make decisions and they agree with Leslie. I I agree with Leslie too, and I don't know if Leslie recognises that she agrees with me as well. Sounds like compromise is breaking out. No, really. Anyway, thank you all very much uh, for coming. Hope you enjoyed that, and just thank our panelists.